So Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to come in just a few moments. Here we are in the Christmas season, and the Christmas season is always an exciting time of year, but it can be one of those that brings a lot of stress and pressure. If we're not careful, the schedule becomes overwhelming, and uh, we begin to get distracted with what the real reason is for this time of year and how special it really is. This morning, we're going to launch a new series that is going to take us through the next four Sundays during this December month, and the title of that series is Hope is Here. The topic of hope has become a must discussion during the Christmas season, for it is one that is on the top of everybody's mind. It is one that is unique and special. As the Hallmark Channel quickly puts it, it is always a Christmas miracle, and how we just love to see those Christmas miracles. But this is a season when many long to find something that they can hope in. For instance, some people will try to find hope in peace with all men. They will think that this is the time of year when families should come together and conflict should not have any part and people should get along. There should be peace to all men. It's the time of year when you don't yell at people, though they cut you off on South Florida. It's the time of year that you don't mind giving somebody preference in the line at Walmart because you know you're going to be there another 30 minutes waiting anyway. It's that time of year when we hope to have peace with all men. And then it's the time of year that we hope to have goodwill toward men. We're looking to see what we can do to be of a help and a blessing, to put a smile on somebody's face and, and to, to be that type of goodwill toward men. We, we try to find our hope in that. There are others that try to find their hope in charitable acts of kindness. It's a time of year when we walk by the dingling bell at the outside of the grocery store and Salvation Army is there with their red pot waiting to get your dollar bill. And they're very pleasant. They're always very kind. And when you put that dollar bill in, they smile and they say thank you. It gives us a warm feeling because it was a charitable act of kindness. Or Publix has their way after paying $150 for eight items at the grocery store. They say, would you like to donate $5 to the charitable act so that they can have a warm Christmas dinner? Well, yeah, of course. Here's 20. It's a charitable act of kindness that we hope to find peace in. Then there's some that will hope to find this sense of feeling in the nostalgia of Christmas, the memories, the stories, and the experience, the cherished moments that Christmas is all about. And so there's a lot of ways that this time of year people are looking for hope. But as a church, We know that the one true hope, the only real hope, is found in a man, and that is Jesus Christ. We know that these other things are, though important, nostalgia, the memories, the, the cherished moments, the peace with all men, the goodwill toward men, and the charitable acts of kindness, though all come into play this time of year, we know that true hope comes from Jesus. And so we're going to look in the Old Testament today at a prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a familiar text at the Christmas season. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This morning as we launch our new series, Hope is Here, we're going to look at planning for the arrival of hope. Planning for the arrival of hope. Would you bow with me and let's pray together. Father, we want to pause and express our full dependency on you today.
We thank you for the music that has prepared our heart. It has excited our spirit toward you and who you are. We thank you for who we are because of you. But now as we settle our spirits, we ask for distractions to be minimal so that we can concentrate on what you have for us today. I know there's a lot on our mind. There's a lot of planning that's going into this afternoon and what is tonight and when does my busyness just really start back up. But Lord, we want to be at calmness. We want to just be still so that we can hear from your conviction so that our lives would be shaped and changed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. So slowly he would arise among the crowd. There would be several that were in the way back that would lean a little bit forward so that they could hear the very words spoken by this man. The atmosphere was electric. He spoke with very carefully chosen words as they would fly as arrows and find their mark. This great man was a spokesman for God. He was giving warning and sometimes even condemnation. The crowd became restless. They knew what he was speaking was controversial. Some agreed, nodding their head and weeping softly. But most of the individuals in the crowd, they began to wrestle back and forth in their seat. They began to become angry, and they would even yell things back toward the one who was God. Here, this would have been the life of a prophet of God. Here, Isaiah is that such prophet. He is speaking clearly to God's people who need to hear the warning and condemnation. You would think Isaiah 9-6 is wrapped in such great message. It's a, it's a beautiful present that can be unwrapped one flap at a time to have it fly out as being a great gift of hope. But understand the context of everything that is going on with the, the children of Israel, the Jewish nation, and why the prophet has come to speak these words. The purpose of this writing is that Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Judah. This would have been the northern kingdom of the nation of Israel. Uh, excuse me, the southern kingdom. And as he is writing to Judah, he is giving this message of salvation and the message of a coming Messiah. And so Isaiah is speaking and writing mainly in the city of Jerusalem. We know as we hold in our hand the book of Isaiah, it's split up into two parts. And the first uh, 40, uh, first 39 chapters are divided in such a way that it gives scathing accusations. It's one full of warnings and statements as he calls Judah and Israel and all the surrounding nations to repent and turn to God. The last part, the last uh, 37 chap 27 chapters are filled with comfort and hope as Isaiah begins to unfold God's promises to them and the blessings that are going to come through his Messiah, Jesus. So when we get to chapter number 9, Isaiah begins with this prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And one uh, that is going to be fulfilled, as we know, we know the story in Luke chapter 2, but this is some hundred years before the birth of Christ. This is something very special that is being told. Look in chapter number 9, because when you see verse number 1, the prophet Isaiah is addressing the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, which represent the northern kingdom as a whole. Now, we know that he is speaking much to the southern region, the southern kingdom of Judah, but there are times throughout the prophecy of, of Isaiah that he is speaking not only to Judah, but Israel and the surrounding nations. 
And he is going to say here that they are facing great trouble. You see in your text the word vexation in verse number 1. They were facing a lot of trouble. They were facing dark times. And the prophecy states that a light would one day come and shine in the midst of their darkness. Now skip, a whole, uh, skip ahead, hold your spot here, and look at Matthew chapter number 4 for just a minute. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter number 4. And when you look at verse number 13, Jesus has faced temptation in the wilderness by the devil. He was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. And now it comes to verse number 12, 13, 14, and I want you to see verse number 13. As Jesus begins his ministry, and leaving Nazareth, Jesus, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. That would have been the northern, uh, northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's by Isaiah the prophet saying, Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew records this as the very beginning moments of Christ's ministry. He's going to refer back to a prophecy that was told 700 years before this about this light coming in the midst of darkness. The people of Israel know exactly what Isaiah is writing at this moment because Naphtali and Zebulun, they're facing a lot of trouble. They're facing dark moments and the people are looking for hope. They're looking for light. They're looking for something to attach themselves Two, that is going to help them to move forward. Hope we can look back and we can see how it all played out. But we know, based on the rest of the story, that the Jewish people had to take Isaiah for his word, but we look back to the New Testament and see how it all happened. So when Isaiah gets to verse number 6, our text today, he has told them of God's promise to send a light in the time of great darkness and that it would shine on everyone living under the shadow of of death. So with that thought, it introduces some of the things that I want us to see in verse number six. With this planning for the arrival of hope, we see first of all at the very beginning of verse number six, the announcement of hope's arrival. Do you see the text? For unto us a child is born. Remember how Luke would record it in Luke chapter two, verse 11? He would say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior which is Christ the Lord. This was a benefit to the Jews first and then later to the Gentiles. Now, the announcement was made, as we said, to some close to 700 years before. And the announcement was a tremendous sign that hope was coming. I was thinking, and I remember, I remember back at the day when Natalie announced to me that she was pregnant. It was not 700 years before Bailey's birth, but it was... Nine months before. Now, there's a backstory that goes to that very special moment. You see, the backstory is, is that we had been married for, for seven years, and we had faced a lot of what we call out-of-our-control moments. You see, we had, um, while we were watching all of our friends that were getting pregnant and starting families, we were not trying to make decisions on baby names or decisions on baby colors or baby furniture. 
we were trying to make a decision based on whether Natalie should have a second major back surgery in 10 years. So here, as a young couple, wanting to start a family, realizing that life is not happening as we had dreamed, we began then to find where our hope really would be. And so after a long recovery from her 10-and-a-half-hour reconstructive surgery, we faced more health difficulties as we sat in the doctor's office to find if the time had now come where we could begin to start a family. And so when the health difficulties piled up and would prevent us from getting pregnant, the doctors would tell us, this cannot happen. This will not happen. It will be very difficult to happen. Or if it does happen, it will be an extremely difficult pregnancy. And so with the doctors telling us that, there was a sense of of lost hope. Written by our pen, but rather God's. And you know, when we think about that, Certainly, we can look back now at nine, ten years later, and we see that God's hand was in that. And you may be saying there, well, yeah, you can tell your sob story, but you've got a a good ending to it as you've got a bouncing nine and six-year-old hanging out in the children's ministry today. And sure, the story did unfold in a way that God showed his blessing in allowing us to start a family. But knowing the backstory and the journey for those seven years was something that caused us to look for comfort from somewhere. We weren't gaining any comfort from a doctor sitting on the other side of the, of the doctor's room. We weren't finding any comfort from magazines and books and DVDs and videos on what was next. We were finding our hope in Christ alone. And so here for all of us, in the middle of all of our despair, we easily fear that our sorrow and troubles will never end. Are you there? In the middle of all of our despair, we easily fear that our sorrow and troubles will never end. But we can take great comfort that although the Lord may not always take us around our troubles, just as he promised the people of Judah, he will walk through them with us. Many of you in here are living examples and testimonies of that. So even though it didn't happen our way and in our time, we ultimately found great assurance that God loves us. And Christians, we have to work hard to avoid the attitude and assumption that God just doesn't care. You may think that your circumstance is too little for God. You may think that whatever you're facing is too big of a despair for God. And you may think that God just doesn't care. That's the wrong attitude and wrong assumption. And we have to deal with that. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, God is going to give Ahaz. He was the grandson of Uzziah. You remember Uzziah mentioned in Isaiah 6. And the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the great holy, holy, holy vision of God. And so Ahaz, in chapter number 7, is having an attitude problem. He's having an issue with trust and dependency on God leading the nation. And God is going to use Isaiah the prophet to communicate to him. And if you study Isaiah chapter 7, you see Isaiah telling that the Lord is saying, Ahaz, ask God for a sign. Ask God for a moment of assurance that there is hope. Do whatever it takes to beg God to bring that to you. By the way, our attitude should not just be, well, God will figure it out and I'm just on in for the ride. Reality is that sometimes we just need to get alone with God and say, why? 
God? Why is this? Why do I feel this way? And then be quiet long enough for God to communicate to you. Ask God for a sign of hope in the midst of your despair. Ask God to give you that peace and comfort in the moment of sorrow. And so Ahaz, in chapter number 7, refused to ask for a sign. Because when God would fulfill the sign, he would be obligated to believe it. By the way, be careful asking God for answers in your life if you're not going to be willing to accept it and believe it. Because too often we're ready to ask God why, but we don't like the answer he gives us. And and, and many times we say, God, what's next? And we certainly don't like the answer he gives us. So when Ahaz refused to ask for a sign because he did not want to be obligated to believe it and act on it, that's when verse 14 comes. You know the verse. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is hope. The abiding truth of this power life that needs an announcement of hope. Maybe it's financial crisis, health tragedy, relationship catastrophe, maybe a career roadblock or spiritual entanglement. Maybe it is crossroads of failure in your life. What is the moment of despair and sorrow that you desperately need a sign of hope? Ask God for it and see the announcement given. Now, the emphasis in our text here in verse 6, the emphasis in the statement is not unto us. But the emphasis, rather, is a child is born. Isn't it interesting, as many times we read scriptures and it's all about us, centered on us? But the emphasis is not about what is going to be given unto us. The emphasis is that there is going to be a child that is going to be given, and that is the hope. So that child would be the Messiah who would come to seek and to save. Number two. As we continue in this verse, he says, unto us a son is given. This is the eternal existence of hope. With man, it seems that hope is really a, it's a tendency to quickly come and quickly go away. You ever looked at hope in that way? I mean, here, let's use this example. We've been talking about Christmas season is a time, a must to discuss hope. It's a time where hope is our driving force. But you know, as soon as the last Christmas decoration is put away and the last Christmas carol is sung, We get back into the new year, hustle and bustle, and it becomes all about my to-do list, my life, my problems, and my needs. And no longer am I thinking about hope. So what happens here is that our hope quickly comes and quickly goes away. But true hope is stable and constant because that has always existed. The eternal hope has always existed. Therefore, it is stable and constant. In our class this morning, Discover Parkway, we were discussing about God and his emotion and that it is unchangeable. We talked about how Christ and the Holy Spirit as a part of the Trinity, they are unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we look at that stable and constant, we know that Jesus Christ is that constant and stable hope that has always been and always will be. It's important for us to remember, this is key, it's important to remember that the existence of the Son of God did not begin with his birth in Bethlehem, okay? That's important. 
We see the baby, and we put up our decorations on Friday night, got the tree decorated and stuff put up in the house, and, and uh, my job was the, the manger scene, and I knew everywhere to put them, and I knew it didn't matter because the master would come back and put them in the exact spot that they should be, and she does a much better job than me. Uh, for some reason, I, I had, uh, well, it was a mess. But I, I was putting people in the place I thought and envisioned it. But then as Natalie put her hand to it, it started to make more sense. But at least I had put Jesus in the right place. Jesus was in the arms of Mary. But it's easy for us to look at the little baby Jesus, and that's just the beginning of Jesus. Like Jesus has arrived. This is the beginning of Jesus, but that's poor theology. That is wrong. Because the existence of the Son of God did not begin in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2, you remember this verse. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah... He was the little, Bethlehem was the little city in all of the southern region of Judah. Yet out of thee, Bethlehem, shall he, Jesus, come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Here it is. Whose goings forth hath been from of old, from everlasting. Now, even Isaiah 9, 7, the verse after our text this morning, the Messiah is going to be seated on David's throne and will have an eternal rule of peace and justice. His rule will have no end. It will go on forever. Following the kingdom here on earth, he will rule for eternity, and we will maintain, or he will maintain righteousness as his rule will conform to God's holy character and his demands. Did you notice what it said there? The eternal rule song they heart. In my devotions this week, I came across a really powerful truth in the book of Zephaniah. Michael Lumpkin wrote this. He said this about the passage in Zephaniah 3. He said, times were bad. It seems like every time we talk about a prophet and we talk about Israel, those, those poor people are just doing bad. So times were bad. There was no escape. And the circumstances just seemed impossible to endure. A voice came from God, and that message was overwhelming. What was the call to action? The call to action, Zephaniah 3, was to wait. And you say, what? Yeah. He was looking at a messed up people who were trusting in themselves, and God was sending a message for them to wait. The people had not waited on God, but rather sought their own wisdom. Isn't that what we try to do many times? Don't we default to trying to fix whatever is broken? We try to find a way out. We want to fix ourselves. And in the end, we want the credit for being better. We want to say, look at what I've fixed. Look at what I've done. Look at how better I am because of what I have worked for. But the truth is that what needs the most fixing in us, which is our unrighteousness, is something that we cannot fix on our own. It's only through the power of God. And so Christ has removed our shame. You ever feel shameful? Christ has removed our shame. Do you ever feel that you are suffering because of judgment? Remember that Christ, our judge, he bore the judgment on the cross on our behalf. And so we must rejoice. For God has removed his judgment of you through Jesus Christ. Therefore, wait. I sent these thoughts from Zephaniah 3 to my accountability partners this week. And I said, guys, jump onto this. Because many times in life, 
we, are, we, are, we lose out on the joy of the Lord because we are so overwhelmed by guilt. It feels like that I'm not uniformed enough into what I'm supposed to be as a Christian. Now, yes, there is the sanctification and there is the, the more every day of becoming like Jesus Christ. But the just man falls seven times and gets back up. Failure is not that you have fallen. Failure is that you have stayed down. So get up. Rejoice that the Lord has already provided a, a payment for your judgment and that you don't have to be shameful because Christ bore that shame on the cross. Amen. Now, the New Testament even tells us about the eternal existence of hope because in John chapter 1, the writer wrote these words, in the beginning was the Word. That word, Word, is Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is all pointing to Jesus. The Gospel of John is going to do everything throughout the letter or throughout this writing that is going to, per, uh, per, uh, per, uh, what is the word, point, there it is, is going to point to the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God in man form. So right away... In the introduction of John, chapter 1, he says, Jesus is God, eternally existent, and was there in the beginning of time. Then he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now get verse number 5 in correspondence to Isaiah 9, 6. What was uh, Zebulun and Naphtali's trouble? What was the nation of Judah struggling with? They were in darkness, despair, and trouble and what did Isaiah say is going to come? A Messiah who will bring light to the darkness, and that light will shine and take away the shadow of death. And here's what happens in verse 5. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it. From the old to the new and everywhere in between. So when the enemy tries to remind you, of your you remind your enemy that you have eternal hope that has been around since the beginning of time, before the beginning of time. And that hope is the light of men that shines in the middle of darkness. Number three. He says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Look at this, the personhood of hope. Wonderful counselor. Literally here, it's a wonder of a counselor. He is exceptional, celebrated, and without equal. A wisdom that is far above any human wisdom. Hey, some of us in our life right now need a wonderful counselor. Some of us are ready to run to a friend, a family member, a co-worker, Somebody in our life that we hope will give us just a, a nugget of truth that we can grab a hold of and chew on and, and transform our life. But what happened to God, or excuse me, what happened to Christ being our wonderful counselor? Hebrews chapter 12, we just studied it this morning. Jesus Christ at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. What better counselor do you want than somebody who will intercede on your behalf? You ever been to marriage counseling? None of you admit that, but if you have, you know going into marital counseling, you want that counselor to be on your side, interceding on my behalf. 
So what I'm telling you, I don't care if it sounds selfish. This is how I feel, and you tell my wife to get fixed so that this will work out. But how about we take our problems, troubles, heartaches, and sorrows to the wonder of a counselor, to Jesus Christ who will intercede on our behalf. He continues, the mighty God. He is God himself, the deity that we study in John. He is God in man form. This is a a picture of his leadership with the word mighty. There would have been nothing for them to back away from in Old Testament. There was the mighty men of valor. There would have been the mighty warriors all throughout the Old Testament text given us in different circumstances of the children of Israel. So when they hear mighty, they perk up and realize strong leadership, strong men. They would know something special here. It's an expression of power. So some have suggested that this simply means a a God-like person or hero. But Isaiah meant more than that. For he had already spoken of the Messiah. He had already spoken that the Messiah would come as no other person and was today to accept God. That's difficult for even the Jewish people today to accept. They don't want to grab a hold of that. And people who don't believe in God in our culture and society certainly don't want to put Jesus in a position that he is or was God. That's why they'll make him some nice man or good prophet or Uh, a really good servant, or a good history lesson, but they never want to put Christ in the place of his deity as being God and man. So Isaiah gives them the title, the mighty God. Then next, the everlasting father. Many people, as I was, honestly, in studying this, thinking, how do we attach everlasting father to God the son? You see where I'm going here? So many people have been puzzled by this title because the Messiah, God's Son, is distinguished in the Trinity as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So how can He be, as the Son, be the Father? Well, a couple of things must be noted in this regard. First, the Messiah being the second person of the Trinity, all equal in part, by the way, but as the second person of the Trinity, in His essence or in His core, He is God. Okay, so we don't, we don't. Therefore, he has all the attributes of God. What does that mean? He has all the attributes of God, including eternality. Jesus is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He is unchangeable. The list could go on as attributes of who Christ is, but also attributes of who God is. So since God is one, even though he exists in three persons, the Messiah is God. Secondly... When you look at the title, Everlasting Father, it's an expression used to describe the Messiah's relationship to time. Here it is, not his relationship to other members of the Trinity as some flow chart, but rather he is said to be everlasting, just as God the Father is called the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 9. So here is not a position of place within the Trinity as the everlasting Father, but rather in position of time as the word eternal or everlasting, and as being equal with Father as having all attributes of God. And then Isaiah ends this with the Prince of Peace. This is personal fulfillment. This is well-being, harmony, and peace with God. When we look at this Prince of Peace, although... Handel's Messiah takes this part and just 
beautifully writes music to it as a, as a, a shout of worship and expression of adoration to God. When we look at this passage of Scripture, we see these four names as giving us the personhood of hope that is to come. That hope is both noun and verb. And that here we concentrate on the noun part that the Messiah will come. And that's where we find hope. How do we choose hope? I'll give you five, four quick things that are not going to be belabored, but they're in the concluding part of this message. How do we choose hope? Well, anchor your hope in God alone. I didn't get time to put these in your notes. I wish I had, or PowerPoint. I found them last night, developed them a little bit, but I wanted to give you these. Anchor your hope in God alone. And then secondly, praise God, because hope and praise are inseparable. You notice that when you're praising God, you're giving hope in Him to be your anchor, your refuge, your strength, your endurance, your comfort. And then thirdly, not only anchor your hope in God alone, praise God, but then remember who God is. Look at His attributes. Look at His love on Wednesday night as we're studying through the book of If you want the handout, I believe there's still some extras in the lobby, and I think those are written out for you about just God's love and and how that transforms our life. And then last, cry out to God. How do you choose hope? Cry out to God. Because our weakness attracts God's attention and always displays His strength. Do you believe that? That your weakness, my weakness, our weakness attracts God's attention and always displays his strength. Paul knew that. In the midst of all of his weaknesses, he said that God assured him that his, sufficient, his grace would be sufficient and that in the midst of his weakness, he would shine forth with his strength. So as the text today gives us to the people of Israel, the, uh, the audience of this writing Some were eager to hear, nodding their head. Others in the crowd were clenching their fists, snarling back rude comments to the prophet, and were fit in anger. But the audience heard the truth, and we can see the planning of the arrival of hope. But today, we don't have to wonder if it will ever arrive. Because never forget, hope is here.